that was kind of the the vibe that I had was just lighthearted and feeling great, looking forward to the adventure. I always you always have this excitement at the beginning of a trip and you don't know what you're gonna come across. And sometimes it's amazing, sometimes it's okay, but it's always it's always an adventure out there. That's Casey Kaiser from Coyote Works, and this is the Guy GPS Off-Road Podcast. I'm Wade, your host, and today we're talking about when it all goes wrong. But first, check out this great deal from Gaia GPS. Gaia GPS has all the maps you could possibly need in one app. Whether it's off-roading, hunting, hiking, biking, it doesn't matter. Have all your maps in one app. No need to buy multiple apps. Gaia GPS does it all. And right now, podcast listeners can get a special discount on Gaia GPS. Get 20% off for a total yearly price of just $32. Head on over to GaiaGPS.com slash Off-Road Podcast. Imagine it's late fall, warm days, and cool nights. You're out on the trail in your fully outfitted rig. So far, the day's been absolutely fantastic. A good, challenging trail, outstanding scenery, a few pleasant surprises here and there. And suddenly it all goes wrong. In the blink of an eye, your fun off-road adventure becomes a demanding test of your skills and fortitude. That's exactly what happened to Casey Kaiser in the middle of the Oregon desert. Casey was miles from pavement when everything went wrong. He never made it to camp that night. But he did make it home, and today Casey tells us about what happened and the lessons learned from the disastrous experience. My name is Casey Kaiser, and I live in the heart of Oregon in a little community called Primeville. I have the YouTube channel Coyote Works, where I do my best to document my adventures of exploring some of the most remote parts of Oregon and tracking down the pieces of lost history that I've got kind of a passion for. My interest in overlanding really started when I got my very first vehicle, an old Dodge pickup truck, got my driver's license, and had the ability to drive off of the home property by myself. And it was really from that point forward that I started throwing gear in the back of the pickup and camping out in the back country. So, you know, 16, 17 years old. And even before that, I was doing it without a, without a vehicle. I would come home after school on a Friday, finish my chores and load up a backpack with some cans of pork and beans and some old blankets or an old sleeping bag or whatever I could find. And I would head out in the hills behind our house and go camping. So overlanding's just kind of been in my blood since the beginning. There's really two things that I love about overlanding that just kind of have fueled my passion for it my whole life. And one is, is just that chasing that place, trying to get to that place where I can have that feeling that not very many other people get to. It's just that drive to go a little bit further to find, you know, what's over that next ridge, what's in that next valley, and hopefully, you know, to drive down a track that maybe nobody's driven down for a couple of years. To me, that is the essence of exploring and overlanding. And then the other piece of it for me personally is I I just have a real interest in the history, what came before us. You know, to me, the original overlanders were the people that traveled out west on the Oregon Trail to discover, you know, they they left uh, someplace in Missouri and went on a six to a nine month journey to get here. And so I have a, a lot of my historical interest is in kind of that generation of people and that history that came along with that. And to me, it's just fascinating the the journeys that they went on and the trials, the tribulations, the heartache, the hunger, you know, to imagine a journey 
where they average eight miles a day over this country that we can breeze through a couple of hundred miles a day on is just incredible to me. Like previous pioneers and explorers, we too are searching for new places. Some of the best trips take us through vast remote landscapes. My favorite kind of trip is number one, a trip where I leave the pavement and I don't see another person that's not with me on that trip until I hit the pavement again at the end of my trip. So, you know, that's one of the critical ingredients for me. The other thing is if I find a little bit of history along the way and if I spend the majority of the trip seeing country that my eyes have never looked across before, like for me, I rarely ever camp in the same place twice. I rarely ever drive the same route twice. I might go into the same area, but I want to see new country and new ground. It's that, again, it comes back to that discovery, that exploration, that spirit of seeing something new. In every off-road story, the vehicle is a main character. In this story, there are two characters, Casey and his Jeep. So my yellow Jeep that I was driving on that fateful day was a 2013 Jeep Wrangler Rubicon JKU. And what was really special about this vehicle is, like a lot of people, I had just come out of a long period of time in my life when I had a lot of other priorities besides overlanding. I had, you know, kids to raise and a career and all of that kind of stuff. So for a long period of time, all of the vehicles that I was using in the backcountry had to double as daily transportation, stuff like that. And so I finally got through that stage of my life. And uh, not that I didn't enjoy that at all, but all that whole time I had had Jeeps when I was younger and they were pretty primitive and pretty rough. And I had been eyeing these newer Jeeps that had come out, these JKUs. And probably for almost two years, I was looking at them. And eventually I pulled the trigger and Really, this was to be my very first like dedicated overlanding rig. For the first time in my life, I was able to actually justify spending the money on a vehicle that was just going to be specifically designed for my overland adventures in the backcountry. So, you know, lockers, disconnecting sway bars, the whole work. It was really a special rig to me. And and I'd only had it for, I think, just just a little over a year when that day came. Over the course of the first year that I had that Jeep, I just slowly but surely started fixing it up to just be a really specialized vehicle for what I do. And for me personally, that doesn't necessarily mean a big lift kit or anything like that. What it meant was setting up the vehicle for me to be able to live out of for days on end while I was doing these trips. Pretty simple stuff, just basically, you know, good tires, good wheels, you know, good solid spare, a lightweight solid roof roof rack on it. Um, and then obviously a rooftop tent, critical piece of gear. That's my lodging while I'm out there. And then other than that, it was it was mainly the loadout in it, you know, the pioneer kit, the shovel, the axe, the recovery gear, the snap straps, the shackles, the come alongs, and then and then my camping gear. And so I had really just got that Jeep fixed up to work just about perfect for my adventures. Labor Day, 2018. Casey had the perfect trip planned, about three hours from his home in Prineville, Oregon. So this was in the fall. It was that perfect time of year when it's starting to cool off. We're starting to get our first couple of frosts at night. So they're crisp. 
the bugs have kind of gone away. You're not dealing with the heat of summer. You still have nice, warm, beautiful days. You've got that, just that really cool fall vibe that I love out there. So I actually had, you know, three full days in front of me of exploring out there. I knew of a couple of homestead locations that I identified that I was going to have to work pretty hard to get to. And then there was a big section of country that I'd never been in before that I had done quite a bit of map recon looking for some routes into. And so I had penciled out a bunch of what I thought would be passable routes to get me into this area that I'd never really explored before. Maps are the places where dreams are born. We spend hours poring over the maps, crafting that next big adventure. For Casey, that means finding the most obscure out-of-the-way places, sometimes where the road hasn't seen travel in years. A lot of the historic sites that I find out in that country, and this trip was no exception, I utilize the, um, the historic map layers through my Gaia GPS app. So there's a 1900 and a 1930 map layer in there that I pour over a lot. Now, the coverage isn't everywhere with those maps. So a lot of times I'll use those maps to kind of hone me into, you know, where historic routes and roads and things are. And then I combine that with reading a lot about local history. And when I say local history, I mean history that's local to whatever area that I'm kind of exploring. It's a lot of map recon, but I mean, one of the most incredible tools for finding that stuff has really been like the geo-referenced mapping apps like Gaia GPS, where I can actually overlay even mineral layers and things like that to see where mining uh, deposits are or mineral deposits are. A lot of clues like that really help hone me into where historic activity has been. You also see a lot of roads on there that aren't necessarily on. If you use some of the base maps like the USGS Topo base maps, those most of those maps were produced in the 80s and they have a lot of things on them that the most current maps don't have on them. So yeah, that's really the process of reading about history and then using, and again, these days it's just almost 100% my Gaia GPS app anymore just because of all of the the variety of base layers and everything that are available in there is really like taking away the need for me to go to multiple different sources. Casey drew a route through one of the most remote sections of the Oregon desert. While close to his home, the route would take hours because the trails were so rough. That trip was was going to take me about three hours drive from my house. And so around here, we have a thing where you don't really measure distance in miles. You measure distance in time because it depends on the condition of the road, how long that it might take to get there. Like some country, you're averaging five miles an hour, you know, it's gonna take you an hour to cover five miles. So so distance wise, it wasn't really that far, a little over a hundred miles or so from my house, about 70 miles on pavement. It's an awesome drive heading east out of Bend on Highway 20, you go out through Oregon's great sandy desert, some just amazing country. And so I had headed out, you know, 50 or 60 miles out east on Highway 20 and then turned south off of the pavement, headed out into some, you know, again, some of some of the more remote backcountry in Oregon. This trip is right in Casey's wheelhouse. Wide open landscapes dotted with old homesteads. 
I turned south off of Highway 20, and once you leave the pavement out in that area, you're basically in wide open sagebrush plateau country, dirt roads with um, sagebrush growing up in the middle of them and sagebrush growing on either side. You're definitely going to get your share of what we call desert pinstriping out here. Generally, you're going to be scraping brush on either side, kicking up a lot of dust out there. But then you're just surrounded by these kind of basin and range topography. So you've got these mountain ranges that you can see off in the distance. And then you'll come to these broken kind of rim rocks that you'll have to climb up over. And you come through these valleys, climb up over these broken rim rocks, drive across these kind of juniper plateaus in between. And then you drop into another sagebrush valley. And it's like each time you come over one of these one of these juniper plateaus and drop into the next valley. It's like a whole new, it's a whole new section of the country out in front of you. And so there's always this, you know, it's like you're in a new area every hour, every, every time you cross another one of those valleys, there's new opportunities. Almost all of them were homesteaded. So if you're paying attention, you can usually find the old tin cans, the broken glass, the occasional windmill tower off in the distance, you'll see sticking up there with, maybe only three or four blades and just kind of lazily turning in the wind out there. And it's just amazing country. Old tin cans, rusty nails, and crumbling walls. This is just heaven for Casey. In doing my research before this trip, I had identified one specific location of a homestead site. And, and it was this was a pretty typical process where I'll find a homestead location, usually by a spring on an old map, and then I'll pull in the satellite imagery and then zoom in on the satellite imagery and look for um, any signs. A lot of times if it's a down homestead or maybe you can see a geometric pattern of a foundation or a corral or something like that. And that's exactly what had happened. I had found one particular homestead in a draw up on the side of this really cool butte system that actually is is one of the, <clears throat> the largest sources of obsidian in the area too, up on the side of Glass Buttes, which is just a little bit south and east of Hampton out there. So there was a homestead site there, and that was going to be my first stop on the trip. And actually, this was a great example of when my research did pay off. I drove up this little draw. I was going down kind of a little bit more established of a gravel road and then I turned off on a little jeep trail and started heading up this little canyon and I just about got to the point where the road had eroded away into nothing it was just getting rockier and rougher and narrower and it dropped down into this little canyon I was starting to turn into kind of a box canyon I could see the steep canyon walls heading up on either side and I finally got to the point where I had just barely enough room to turn around the Jeep. So I had stopped there. I got out of the Jeep and I ended up hiking about a quarter of a mile to get to where I'd identified the homestead's ruins. And there was a really, really neat old down homestead there. I even found remains of the old picket fence. After I spent some time exploring that homestead site, it was the time in the trip when I wanted to start working my way towards the area where I, where I had assumed I was going to find a good place to camp. But that was going to be in an area that I wasn't really familiar with, and I had quite a few miles to get there. So I started picking my way across that country, and probably about an hour or so after I left that homestead, I got into country that I wasn't familiar with where I was driving new roads. And um, it started getting late in the day. The sun started getting kind of low in the sky, and actually time and anybody that watches my coyote works youtube channel will know this is a classic coyote works uh, scenario is that 
I always have a hard time ending my exploring. And so the day tends to get pretty late by the time I, I eventually roll into camp. In fact, it's not uncommon at all for me to be setting up camp in the dark. The sun was getting low, but Casey had weather on his side. It was relatively hot, low 80s during the day, but it would start cooling down pretty fast in the evening. Crystal clear. It was just that central Oregon blue sky, that pure blue sky that's just one of the most beautiful things that you'll ever see. He went on a hunt for a campsite. And I rolled up to one of the typical little barbed wire fence gates across the little two-track Jeep road that I was driving down. I had probably done this a dozen times already that day, which is get out, open a gate, drive through it. Then you got to get back out of the rig and close the gate. So they're always a little bit of an inconvenience. But the rule in this country is you come to a gate that's open, you leave it open. You come to a gate that's closed, you drive through it, and you close it behind you. That's just etiquette for out here in the ranching country. So... I rolled up to that gate and I stepped out of the Jeep with no other thought in my mind than walking up and open that gate and hoping that it was going to be one of the last gates I'd have to open that day. And as it turned out, it was. Walking up to the gate, something unusual caught Casey's eye. And I just noticed out of the corner of my eye, it looked like a little steam coming out from underneath my hood. And... I didn't smell anything burning, so my my first and instantaneous thought was that maybe I had a pinhole leak in a radiator line and I was leaking coolant under there. So I looked down, I saw that steam, and I thought, oh man, I hope that I don't have a serious problem here. So I walked around the front of the Jeep, and you know, the Jeeps have latches on either side of the hood, so... I just, I'm a pretty tall guy with a pretty decent wingspan. So I reached out my hands on either side, flipped those latches on the hood, reached down with my left hand. And as soon as I lifted the hood up, flames erupted underneath there. Nothing like this had ever happened to Casey before, but immediately his reflexes took over. I dropped the hood. I ran around to the back of the Jeep. Right behind my driver's seat, I had a fire extinguisher. So I opened up my door, grabbed my fire extinguisher out, came back around, opened the hood back up again, and then sprayed it down with um, with the fire extinguisher in there. And actually, I was, for a moment there, I was really feeling this sense of relief. I emptied the entire fire extinguisher. You know, your heart's beating like crazy the entire time. You don't really have time to think about what's going on. At that point, you just have to act. And so I sprayed the fire extinguisher in there. And for like a brief moment, I couldn't tell you if it was 20 seconds or if it was a minute. I'm guessing it was a lot less than a minute. Okay, right here. Let's all agree that having a fire extinguisher is essential off-roading and overlanding gear. Do you have one or even two? But sometimes a fire extinguisher isn't enough. The flames were down. I'm looking at my hood. There's smoke coming out of the engine compartment in there. There's white, you know, fire extinguisher stuff all over the inside of the motor. And I'm just starting to breathe a little sigh of relief. And then all of a sudden, the flames come back up in there. And I tell you guys, my heart just sunk at that moment. Are you on the edge of your seat? I am. But hold on right here. We've got another great deal to tell you about. This time from Trails Off-Road. 
Whether your style of off-roading is rock crawling, overlanding, or even soft-roading, Trails Off-Road has thousands of detailed trail guides for you. Their unique trail rating system helps you find the right level of difficulty for your adventure. From mild to wild, you can know before you go with Trails Off-Road. And right now, Trails Off-Road is offering a special discount for Gaia GPS Off-Road podcast listeners. Just go to trailsoffroad.com slash podcast for this great deal. Remember, know before you go with Trails Off-Road. This is the Guy GPS Off-Road Podcast. I'm Wade, your host, and today we're talking about when it all goes wrong. Up until that point, I was still hanging on to the hope that maybe I was going to drive out of there. But at that moment, when those flames came back up the second time and my fire extinguisher was empty, at that point, my whole philosophy shifted from trying to save the vehicle to trying to save myself and minimize the damage. When those flames came back up the second time for just a few seconds, they were nice and low, but within literally within seconds, they were coming up all around the hood and everything. And so at that point, I was running out of options really rapidly. The next thing I could think of is I also did have a lot of water. So I ran all the way around to the back of the Jeep, opened up the rear of it, and grabbed some water out of there, grabbed some gallon things of water out of there. And I started dumping water in the engine compartment. But I got to a point where I dumped about two gallons of water or so on it, and it wasn't really having much of an impact at all on the fire. In fact, I was having a hard time really figuring out even where the source of the flames were coming from. Water is worth its weight in gold in the desert. And Casey knows every drop counts. I got to a point where... You know, I decided that I'm out in the middle of the desert and I don't know how long I'm going to be out here. So I need some water. I can't I can't expend all of my water trying to put this fire out. And I still had a couple of gallons left. Then the next thing was, okay, I've got to grab some survival gear out of here. I've got to start getting some gear out of the rig. And at that point, there was already starting to be some smoke coming through the firewall. So I had gone around to the passenger side of the vehicle, opened the door, thinking about grabbing some gear out of there. And now I could see smoke coming through the dash into the cab of the vehicle. And so now I'm starting to think, okay, I don't maybe have very much time at all to grab gear out of here. So luckily... This has been something that I've felt really strongly about over all the years. I feel like it's so important to have a pre-packed pack or bag or something full of all the gear you need to stay a little while if you're out there. So that was the first thing I grabbed. I, you know, I like to call it my zombie apocalypse bug out bag or whatever, but it has all the gear in it that I would need to spend a night. Once I had that, I really started thinking about, okay, what else is either number one handy or number two could come in the most um, the, the would be the most valuable to me to get out of the vehicle. So luckily the way I kind of have everything packed, it's sort of in bags and boxes and modules. Then I grabbed what I call my loadout bag that just has kind of miscellaneous tarps and camping gear and things like that. I grabbed my, what I call my kitchen box that has my stove, my fuel, my food supply, all of that in it. And then I was able to grab my ice chest, and that was pretty much it. By the time I got that out of there, 
the flames were all along the roof on the inside of the cab. And it was starting to get to the point where I would reach into the Jeep to grab something and the flames were just kind of kissing at my, you know, my arms and my face. Casey's perfectly outfitted Jeep is literally going up in flames before his eyes. But that suddenly becomes the least of his worries. And the other aspect of it being in the fall is that is literally the driest time of year in central Oregon. That's the longest period of time with the highest average temperature and the least amount of rainfall. The environment out there is a literal tinderbox at that point. And where I'm at, I'm surrounded I'm in kind of an open area surrounded by sagebrush, but within 25 to 35 yards of me, there's starting to be juniper forest. And we're in the the very height of fire season at this point right here too. So one of the worst things that started to happen at that point is as plastic and stuff started to melt off the Jeep, it, it would drop to the ground and it started catching the grass and the sagebrush on fire on the ground. So at almost the exact time that I got the last piece of gear out of the Jeep that I could get out, I realized that fire was starting to spread out around the Jeep. Like this is already a travesty. I've lost my Jeep. I shared with you guys earlier how cool this Jeep was and how much it meant to me for the first time in my life. It was my, it was my ultimate off-road overlanding vehicle, and she's burning to the ground in front of me. But the next thing I'm thinking is I cannot let this start a wildfire. I cannot, I cannot be responsible for that. I just couldn't live with myself if I was the cause of a fire that destroyed so much of that environment that I love out there. So at that point, you know, I grabbed the shovel. And I started cutting fire line around the vehicle. And basically for about the next probably two hours or so, all the way until dark through that next period of time was me just intermittently cutting fire line, putting out the fire as it was spreading all the while while the Jeep is burning to the ground with these occasional like loud explosion and sparks would go everywhere. And it was a tire erupting or a fuel can or something like that. And and at one point, there was a huge explosion. I think I've actually even got the camera going when this happens. Casey is the consummate YouTuber. Even with explosions and a flaming Jeep and cutting a fire line, he's going to get some video out of this. Now, granted, it's terrible footage. And half the time, it's shaky and my voice is cracking and everything. But but. I really was compelled to try to at least capture a little bit of the experience um, there. And there's one scene in there that I think is actually on camera where I'm talking to the camera and there's a big explosion in the Jeep behind me and I sort of flinch and have have to duck a little bit. When the flames finally died down, Casey realizes that he's not going home with his rig. Not that night, not ever. From the time that I looked over and saw that little bit of smoke coming out underneath the corner of the hood of the Jeep to the time that the Jeep finally, the fire started subsiding and everything was a couple of hours. And during that couple of hours, you kind of go from one sort of survival priority to another. And, you know, all during that time, it's really a process of determining what is the next thing that you have to focus on? What's the next thing that has the potential to cause the most damage or potentially be life-threatening? So 
Initially, it was the fire in the vehicle, and then it's getting the gear out because I'm miles and miles out in the middle of the backcountry in the desert, right? If I don't have water, I mean, water arguably is the most important thing, but it is getting cold at night too. So having some kind of shelter and some basic supplies was that was the next thing after treating the initial fire. But then it's the brush fire because the other aspect of starting a range fire out there is now I'm on foot in the middle of a range fire, which could potentially be a life-threatening situation too. So really you just go from managing one crisis to the next and trying to do your best to prioritize and sort through it. And and so really what's interesting is that whole entire time of just kind of being focused on the next most important task in front of you, you don't really have a lot of time to be emotional or to kind of process all this that's happened. So I hit this moment a couple hours after I first got out of my Jeep and saw that what I thought was steam coming out from underneath the corner. A couple hours later, it's now dark. There's still flames coming off of the Jeep. It's still burning. But at this point, you know, it's subsided a little bit. I've got fire line cut all the way around the Jeep. Basically, all the immediate work is done. And there's this moment all of a sudden when I'm standing there and I'm realizing that my baby has just burned to the ground and I'm out in the middle of the desert with really, you know, nothing for miles and miles around me. And his Jeep was beyond totaled. One of the things that was really amazing about this whole experience was just the realization of how much is flammable on your average modern vehicle. So after that Jeep had burned for a couple of hours and was basically at the point where it was just sort of smoldering and there was kind of some glowing red metal parts on it. I mean, really what was left of that Jeep at that point was this blackened hull that was pretty much the steel body metal of the Jeep, the steel of the bumpers. You could see the roll bar, the steel roll bars were there, but really almost everything else was gone, melted into the ground of that Jeep. The wheels melted down into puddles of aluminum alloy on the ground, like these six foot in diameter puddles. They looked like you know, puddles of mercury or liquid metal down there on the ground. It was just absolutely incredible. Everything that wasn't literally a form of like tin or steel, aluminum melted. I could find no trace of the roof rack. I could find no trace of the frame of the rooftop tent. All of the things that were made out of aluminum completely melted down and turned into a There was probably about a 15-foot wide by 20-foot long puddle of melted aluminum underneath where the Jeep was sitting. And the smell when that fire was going, just that acrid smell of burning plastic and petroleum byproducts and oil, I'm I'm certain I took several years off my life with all the smoke that I breathed during that experience. Casey started wondering, how's he going to get out of there? I'm a long ways away from any place, probably 25 miles at least away from a road where there's any likelihood of me running into another vehicle. However, after the fire all subsided and everything, and I kind of drug some of my gear over to a place by this juniper tree and started thinking about hydrating and putting some calories in me, and I looked down at my phone and I actually had a little bar of service there. So 
that was my first kind of little ray of hope in the whole experience. There wasn't enough service to make a phone call, but he did the next best thing. He sent a Gaia GPS track out to his friends. So I opened up my Gaia GPS app and I started drawing a track. So I knew that I couldn't get somebody to me the way that I came was going to be too far because at the place where I was, I had it was about six hours of off-pavement driving to get there. But there was another shorter route that I thought somebody could get to me in about three to four hours from my town where I was from. So I drew a route. And I basically used the tool inside my GPS app to be able to draw a route. So I drew a route and I texted it to a friend of mine and and I didn't get any response. I didn't get, I didn't have enough reception to actually have a conversation with him. And I didn't even know if that text went through. And then a little while later, I'm around there and I get a notification on my phone and I had a text message from my friend on, on our way. So I knew help was on the way. However, what I didn't know is like, you know, it's the middle of the night now, right? And they're driving through country they've never seen before following nothing but a track that I've drawn in Gaia GPS on roads that I've never driven on before. So I don't even know that the roads that I've selected for them to follow are passable roads. They're just theoretically a route in there. And I don't know how much she's navigated like this before, but I but I did show her how to use Gaia GPS earlier. So there was that. Not knowing if help would come, Casey hunkered down for the night. And then music to his ears. A couple hours later, I hear a motor off in the distance and here she comes. So it was probably like around three o'clock in the morning or something like that because we got all my stuff loaded up and we started making the long journey back to town. And on the way back to town, by the time we got back to town, it was actually just starting to get light outside. So it ended up taking almost the entire night um, to get home from that little ordeal. Dealing with the burning car and getting out of there safely was just the first chapter in this heartbreaking novella. On the next page, Casey had tow trucks and insurance companies to deal with. So one really interesting thing about the experience is, is that solving the situation with the fire and then getting out of there, that was really just the first part of it. Then there's a couple of other challenges that you encounter. And one is, is that I have this, you know, burned out hole of a Jeep now that's out in the middle of BLM land out in the middle of nowhere. So I took a day off of work that following week and I met the tow truck driver in a little town called Brothers, Oregon which was really the last like known, you know, point on the map. It was really kind of an eerie experience though when we got back to the side of the Jeep because when I left there it had been dark and then when we got there with the tow truck in the daylight it was really interesting to see like how big of an area was burned around it. You could see where I'd like cut the fire line around the Jeep and everything and there was a pretty good area of burned out sagebrush and grass around it and then you know, that's really when I was able to see like all of the the melted aluminum and everything from the vehicle that had just kind of dripped down through the frame and landed on the ground. So, yeah, it was it was a pretty eerie experience actually seeing it in the daylight there for sure. 
why the Jeep caught fire remains an unsolved mystery. So the um, both the insurance company and Jeep did investigations on it and what they, the theory that they have, and I don't think that there's any way for them to know for absolute certain, but the theory they have is they think that it was a transmission fluid leak that leaked transmission fluid on top of the bell housing. And because of the nature of what I was doing when I was out there, which was traveling at really slow speeds, it was relatively hot, you know, 85 degrees or something. I had been traveling at really low speeds most of the day, which is where your transmission and engine temperatures are the highest. And so they think that there was an issue with some of those Jeeps around those years. They had a aluminum transmission fluid line that ran along the bell housing and could vibrate like against a cooling fin or something, apparently. So they think that's what happened, that it developed this small leak and then allowed that transmission fluid to puddle up on top of the bell housing. And then somehow it ignited or, um, you know, maybe it got a little bit of like organic matter in it or something like that. But that's kind of their theory. That's what they think anyway. But I don't think there's any way for them to know 100 percent for sure. There were a couple of things that I learned from the experience, one of which was um, that in the, the hardest lesson for me in all of it was really kind of the financial lesson and a reminder of kind of how insurance works. And at the end of the day, you know, really your auto insurance is basically designed to make you whole or replace the value of your vehicle at the time of the accident or at the time of the loss. and. And then obviously insurance companies are, their goal is to be profitable. So what they're going to do is they're going to try to give you the least amount of money they think they can in order to allow you to replace your vehicle in the condition it was at the time of the loss. So what, um, one of the things that I learned really, really quickly was that while I did have full coverage insurance on the vehicle, what that insurance wasn't going to cover was all of what they call the non-factory add-ons and accessories and all of the gear in it. So if you're an Overland person like I am, you could potentially have tens of thousands of dollars worth of add-ons on your vehicle and gear in your vehicle, which was definitely the case with me in this particular experience. So my insurance happened to include $1,500 of coverage for non-factory add-ons and accessories but if you think about things like tires and wheels and roof racks and all of that kind of stuff $1,500 really doesn't go very far and rooftop tent and you know extra fuel mounting capacity and all of that kind of stuff that was all on there there's really no coverage for any of that so i think the first lesson was really that you know if you're the kind of person that goes out in the backcountry and does that it ended up being really inexpensive for me to fix that problem for the future i want to say it added about eight dollars a month or something like that to my auto insurance to add a rider on it to add some additional coverage. And I think I added like $15,000 worth of coverage for non-factory add-ons and accessories. And then the other half of that was really the gear, like your auto insurance really isn't designed to cover that kind of, that amount of gear inside your vehicle. I was able to remedy that problem by adding some coverage to my dwelling policy. So now I've got some coverage for personal property, 
even if the loss occurs when I'm in my vehicle. So that that is definitely the biggest thing that I would say. And like, if there's one thing that I would want everybody else in the world who loves going in the backcountry and stuff to know, it is that like, take that time to check with your insurance company and make sure that you have good coverage for all that stuff. Because I mean, it was a tremendous loss. And there's I'm still running across stuff three years later in certain camping situations when I'm realizing that I need a certain piece of gear that was in my Jeep. You don't think about all those little binoculars and Leatherman multi-tools and all of those little things that you buy a little bit at a time, $100 here, $200 there, you know, a GPS unit, all of that stuff. But when you lose that all at once, that's a pretty big deal. The second lesson I would say that I learned, which is more of a reaffirmation of something that I already knew and did happen to be prepared for, but that is just the reaffirming the importance of having a pre-packed, like for lack of a better word, I'm going to call it a bug out bag or an emergency pack, something that you can grab that you know has all the supplies in it that you might need to survive a couple of nights out there. So luckily I had that and that was one of the things I was able to grab out of the Jeep. Once I grabbed that pack, I knew I had all of the my survival gear and my emergency gear. So that was the important thing. I had a little bit more time to grab a few more things after that, but not much. And the most important thing was when I grabbed that pack, I knew that I could stay a couple of nights out there and hike out of there if I needed to. I would say related to that, kind of the third thing is, especially when you go into really remote country solo with your vehicle, I think the mindset that a lot of people have is they really kind of operate with this hope that nothing will ever happen to their vehicle. And we really stake a lot on our vehicle. Our vehicle is sort of our lifeline when we're out there. A lot of times it's not only our comfort, but it's also our survival and everything. But the reality is, is that vehicles are mechanical devices and they can fail. And what I would say is, is that luckily for me and a lot of people, um, commented about how calm it seemed like I was in that experience. But part of that is, is that I've always operated with the mindset that something could happen, that something bad could happen at any given moment. And so I wasn't psychologically totally um, in a state of shock when that happened, right? It was a scenario that I'd replayed in my mind before, that I'd thought about, that I'd prepared for, that I had the pack and everything. Um, and I've been in a few other emergency situations too, and that helps. But a lot of it is just the mindset and knowing that there's a distinct possibility that your vehicle can fail you. What I always say is, is that there's less of a likelihood that I'm going to be in a true survival situation out there. There's a much greater likelihood that I'm going to be in an unplanned extension to my camping trip is what I refer to it as. Like when my Jeep caught on fire... There wasn't, it didn't have to be life-threatening, the aftermath of it, outside of the danger of the fire and everything. But all it really was, when you think about it, is if I hadn't have gotten rescue that night, I would have just had to tack on another night or two to my camping. Worst case scenario, I would have had to walk probably about 25 miles in that scenario to get to a road 
that might have a couple of cars a day on it. But here's the thing is, is that, you know, I've been on backpacking trips before. It wouldn't be the first time that I've lived out of a backpack, right? As long as you have the gear staged, it doesn't have to be a debilitating crisis. It doesn't have to be a survival situation. Now, if you don't have the gear and your rig dies and you don't have food and you don't have water and you don't have shelter and you're 25 miles away from a road, now you're in a survival situation. So for me, that is, you know, just another huge affirmation of number one, being mentally prepared for the fact that something can go sideways on you out there. Something can go wrong. And number two, as long as you're mentally and physically prepared for it, and by physically, I mean with the gear and everything, then it doesn't have to be a crisis and it doesn't have to be a survival situation. With this perfectly outfitted Jeep melted into a puddle in the desert sand, Casey salvaged what he could from this experience. A few really good lessons. One thing that I have changed a little bit about my loadout after that experience or about the way that I approach things is I consolidated my gear into a smaller number of containers to make it a little bit easier for me to grab more of my gear out of the vehicle if that ever happened again. I kind of put most of my camping gear into one really large loadout duffel bag, kind of my cooking and food box, and then kind of my camp gear box. So really, if I had a situation where I had to get everything out of my vehicle really fast, by grabbing those three boxes. And I think that's a good approach anyway. Um, it also makes it easier to load and unload the vehicle to transfer gear from one vehicle to another. So there's a lot of kind of practical uh, benefits to consolidating that, that gear loadout. Casey also started carrying a satellite communication device with him on remote trails. What I really like about that is the ability to be able to send a text message to a friend of mine. Cause for the most part, I know guys that can come get me. I just need a way to make contact with them if I don't have cell reception or data reception. It turns out not even a disaster of this magnitude would keep Casey from his next rig. He went shopping for his dream vehicle, which was, you won't even believe this. Yeah, so after it, that Jeep caught on fire, um, a lot of people were really encouraging me to get um like a Toyota 4Runner or maybe a full-size pickup or really anything besides a Jeep. Everyone was like, uh, was like, oh man, don't get another Jeep. Those things catch on fire. But the way I look at it, I've already had my Jeep fire. So I think that's probably the safest vehicle for me to drive because I don't know of anyone in the history of man who's had two Jeeps catch on fire. But the cool thing is, is I actually got the Jeep that I really wanted was even a little bit of an upgrade over my over my JKU Rubicon. And that is I got a JKU Rubicon, but I got the recon version that even has a little bit heavier duty. It had the steel bumpers and the rock sliders and the upgraded axles and everything even over the Rubicon. So a little bit stronger rig for me. I basically really fixed it up pretty similar to my Rubicon that burned. And I mean, interestingly enough, is that was really kind of my dream off-road overlanding rig. So it just felt natural to just really come pretty close to replacing it, but just upgrade it a little bit.
Thanks, Casey, for coming on the show. If you really want to see Casey's Jeep go up in flames, go to his YouTube channel, Coyote Works. Besides his Jeep burning down, he's got a ton of interesting adventures on there. Also, you can stop by his Coyote Works Instagram page. And while you're at it, give us a follow at Gaia GPS Off-Road. And thanks for tuning in to our debut episode. This is Wade. See you next time.